And if you're, if you're new or you've been kind of traveling to and fro this summer, let me try to catch you up on where we are in, tum, in terms of our summer sermon series. About three or four months ago, the elders and pastors made a, a, a kind of a daunting proposition to you as our church body. We said, we need to change our statement of faith. Um, we need a statement of faith that is more robustly biblical and theological, that is, that is rich in doctrine, that affirms who we are as a church. And, and we're going to vote on this at the end of the summer. Well, actually, at the beginning of the school year in September. But, and we said, what we want to do is adopt the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith. Thirteen articles. Um, that's an article a week through the course of the summer. We're up to Article 8 this morning. And, and the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith guys, is, I mean, written by John Piper, Tim Keller, Don Carson, others, really rich. I am really hopeful that one day we will look back on this season as a church and say, you know what, that is when God really put his imprint upon us biblically, theologically, and it's something that we return to um, over and over and over again. And let me just say a special thank you on behalf of the pastors and elders. These processes can be hard, um, but, but it has been an incredible joy just to see you as a church family wrestling with these truths. So exchanges of emails, lunches, discussions, pastors, classes, um, it's, been a, it's been a really engaging time. It's been a really encouraging time, and here's what's really encouraging. You are being a church like, like we just studied about in Acts, like the church in Berea. We want to study God's Word. We, we, we recognize there's the role of the pastor and teacher and elder in teaching God's word, but ultimately you don't accept things or receive things or affirm things because I say it or any other elder or pastor says it. It's only true to the extent that God's word says it and affirms it. And that's been the most encouraging uh, thing to see, to see us as a church wrestling with these things in light of the truths of God's word. So, so thank you for that. We're going to be looking at Article 8 on justification. And, and before we read this article and begin to unpack it this morning, um, l- let me ask you something. When you came in this morning, what sort of questions or concerns are, are swirling for you during this season? Okay? What, what, what sort of things are kind of, what kind of questions are you, are you wrestling with? And maybe it's something related to finances or you're wondering how you're going to pay for college, like all your kids are lined up like, like planes on a, on a runway, and they're all getting ready to take off into the wild blue yonder, and you're like, how are we going to pay this? How am I going to retire? What am I going to do during retirement? Um, where, should, I, should I continue on in my present job? Should I move? Or the most weightiest question of all, who is going to get suspended next for FSU? I don't know. We will see, okay? All right. Don't worry, I take a shot at my, my, my homeboys this morning, okay, from Tennessee. This article that we're going to look at this morning actually addresses what I think is the supreme question in all of life, the ultimate question, okay? And, and, and here is the question. How is a person made right before God? Okay, I would submit to you that there's no more ultimate question for every person in this room to ask themselves this morning, on what basis does God say, I love you, and I accept you, and I'm now in relationship 
with you. I'm communing with you. Hey, you know what? Between me and God, things are right. I am at peace with him. He is at peace with me. And not just now, but for eternity. And and by the way, that is not just a question that Christians or theists wrestle with. It's also something that every person on planet Earth, in some form or fashion, has to come to terms with. Everyone, in their own way, is running around trying to make sense of things. How am I to be right with the world that's around me? Now, here's a a quote from um, a, a prophet, not a biblical prophet, but certainly a pagan one, this is what Madonna had to say, tw- you know, some odd 20 years ago in Vanity Fair, okay? As she wrestled with, what do I have to do to be right? Right with myself, right with the world. She said, all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting, And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. Brooks, if you... Every movie, every song, every sitcom, every website evolves around that most basic of tensions when you get right down to it. There's a problem to be solved. There's a solution to be found. There's something about the human condition and nature that we are wrestling and struggling with the world around us. How, am, how, how are things to be set right? And the way the Christian Faith approaches this issue is through this idea of justification. Now, we're going to define more specifically what that means over the course of this morning. But broadly speaking, let me just talk about what we mean by justification or to justify. If you're to, if you're to show up to work tomorrow morning and you ask your boss, he or she, and tell them you need a 50% raise, okay, what are they likely to do? For those of you who have a job, okay, all right, so, 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 I mean, like, peace, right? Like, or, or if they're a really thoughtful, kind boss, well, well, tell me why, okay, on what basis do you think you deserve such a raise? Hey, here's the quote, here, here's the word, justify that for me, right? So to justify means to give a reason, a rationale, a defense for something. And so when we're going to talk about justification theologically, we're asking, on what basis are we made right with God? You may say you're right with God this morning, but are you? How do you know? How do you, here's the word, justify that? On what basis can we, this morning, make that claim? And I would submit to you, if there is a God, it's the, and we believe there is, and affirm there is, and there is no more ultimate important question to ask than that one. And that's what this article takes up. And let's read it together, and we're going to 
unpack it. The justification of sinners. Here's what this Article 8 says. We believe that Christ, by His obedience and death, fully discharged the debt of all those who are justified. By His sacrifice, He bore in our stead the punishment due us for our sins, making a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice on our behalf. By His perfect obedience, He satisfied the just demands of God on our behalf. Since by faith alone, that perfect obedience is credited to all who trust in Christ alone for their acceptance with God. Inasmuch as Christ was given by the Father for us, and His obedience and punishment were accepted in place of our own, freely and not for anything in us, this justification is solely of free grace. In order that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. We believe that a zeal for personal and public obedience flows from this free justification. Lord, we need your help. This is, these are weighty matters. These are big terms. But Lord, they communicate the most foundational of all of truths. So, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the majesty of how you accept us as righteous in your sight. Lord, there is no greater personal issue at stake in our lives than that one. So, bless us now as we dig into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Even if you're, if you're not a Christian or haven't been in Sunday school or even had a history course, you, you are probably familiar with the man Martin Luther. He lived in the 1500s over 500 years ago. He was a monk in the Catholic Church, a scholar, professor, and a pastor. And he spent his life consumed with this question of how are we justified before God. In fact, Luther said... It is upon this article that the church stands or it falls. And I would submit to you, Four Oaks, that it is upon this article that your faith and my faith stands or falls. And, and, and here's what happened with Luther. Luther was a German boy. Okay? He grew up in the German countryside, and he journeyed to Rome which in his youth, when he was a young man, which was the seat of the Roman Catholic Church. And he had the same experience that some of us have when we take a journey and we go to a place that makes us awfully thankful for where we live. Okay, have you had that experience? We had that experience this past week. Our family went to, to Tennessee and seen family and friends. I'll tell you more about that in a minute. Um, which was all great except for one thing. And, you, and you'll have to, and, and I offer no apologies for this, for this hater's comment. It was all great for one thing. We had to go through Alabama to get there, okay? And, and you know, Alabama makes Tennessee look like the French Riviera, okay? So I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm no joke. Okay? So, so in terms of the rules of law and traffic, every Alabamian does what is right in his own eyes, okay? So we leave at the crack of dawn, and it's 10 hours later, and we have not gotten out of Dothan. Have you guys had this experience at, in that place? We're like, get us out of here. Get us home. Same thing with Luther. He journeys to Rome, and, and these are his spiritual heroes. 
Okay, these are the archbishops and the pope, and but he gets there, and there is just corruption and, a, and apostasy on an unprecedented level. You have leaders of the church living in the lap of luxury and opulence and owning servants and land and buildings, and they are paying for it on the backs of ignorant Christians. Remember, no one had a Bible. If you did have a Bible, that Bible was written in Latin. That means no one could understand it. People like you would go to a church service. It would be done in Latin. No one spoke Latin. No one understood it. It, was, it, it had devolved into sort of a superstitious exercise. But, but probably the thing that startled and concerned Luther the most was, was the theological corruption that had been taking hold of the church. You see, when people, laity, can't read God's Word, apply it, then, then they're at the mercy of the whim of their leaders. That's why when we go through a process like we've been going through with this statement of faith, it, it's, it's incumbent upon all of us to be vested theologically and biblically in these things. But th- there had evolved this, this system um, uh, called penance. And if you've seen the movie The Mission where Robert De Niro is, De Niro is, the, is, the, is the main antagonist and, and he comes from a life of sin and wretchedness and he's a murderous man and he's converted, but in order to make up for all the evil that he had done, what does he have to do? He carries this burden on his back, not a spiritual burden, but a physical burden. It's like a big rock or something attached to his back, and that's what he has to go do. And that's what was happening in the church, except oftentimes the penance that people had to make for their sins wasn't a Hail Mary or it wasn't a physical burden. They had to pay money. The more money you paid, the more uh, absolution you could receive for your sins. And so if there was someone who died and we weren't sure if they had done enough good works or were obedient enough, then the church would collect indulgences from people. You would pay, in a sense, for restitution, for forgiveness. And the church was using this money to to build St. Peter's Cathedral. And, and, And Luther saw all this. And he was just flummoxed. He was like, the, the, the church is in disarray because what I'm seeing the scriptures teach is not what is being practiced by the church. People think they are justified by their obedience or by their indulgences or by the penance that they are paying. In fact, one of the most popular sayings at that time went something like this. You may have heard it before. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. And Luther went back to Germany and said, it's time for a reformation. Didn't happen exactly like that. But anyway, that's the short version, okay? But what was so influential to Luther was that he was studying his Bible. See, he could speak Latin, and he had been trained. And he was comparing what was to what should be, and it was the book of Romans that was so transformative for him. And I'm so thankful it was because, humanly speaking, it's why we are here today. And Romans 3 particularly imprinted itself upon the life of Luther and these reformers. And we're going to use it as our jumping-off point this morning. So Romans 3, verse 20, let me read the text. How is one made right with God? That's the question. 
For by works of the law, Paul says, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We're not going to say everything we could say about this text. I think John Piper preached five or six sermons on this text. John MacArthur probably preached five or six years on this text. Okay, We're going to preach one 35-minute sermon on this. Three questions, though, that I think are particularly pertinent that emerge from this text that we want to answer. The first question is this, what do we need, where does it come from, and how do we get it? What do we need, where does it come from, and how do we get it? What do we need? Guys, you can witness the events of the last week and just know intuitively, even if you are not a a Bible-thumping Christian, that this world is a screwed-up place. So, so my hometown, Chattanooga, five military personnel slaughtered by a Muslim extremist this week. If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. The video of the Planned Parenthood representative discussion over cocktails and wine, I might add, all orbiting around the prospect of selling aborted baby parts for money. And when, and when we hear the, the, the pro-choice slogan, my body, my choice, those arguments don't work, do they, when you're selling someone else's heart, liver, and lungs. This world is a messed up place. Now, as easy as it is to wrap your mind around that, just anecdotally, existentially, here's a better question. Okay? It's a good question to ask how, how messed up the world is and it's messed up. But a better question, and one you may not have asked, how messed up do you think you really are? How messed up do I think I really am? Because Paul makes a pretty bold, audacious claim in verse 23. And this verse is so familiar, you probably memorized it in Sunday school 30, 40 years ago. We don't want to trivialize it, though, or make it trite, because it's, it's profound. Verse 23 for all, without distinction, fall short of the glory of God. And we have to, to ask, what does that mean that every one of us have fallen short of the glory of God? Let me illustrate this. My, my friend and fellow elder, um, Pete Butler, is here today. And, and Pete is a, is a cyclist extraordinaire, okay? And, and don't, don't try to ride, the, ride around the block with Pete, okay, because he, he, he'll smoke you. So, so Pete was in Minnesota a week or two ago, and he was racing in the national championships, okay, in the old man's division, okay? And, and sorry, Pete. 
And, and Pete won his first race. So that means that in his age group, 50 plus, I suppose, um, he is the best cyclist in, these, in this particular event or these two events of anyone in America. Um, I don't think it has anything to do with being an elder, but anyway, it's a nice, it's a nice thing, okay? So he, he got a plaque or a medal or something. But what happened in this race, in his second race, was that they initially ruled Pete to have come in second, okay? So we've got a little picture here we want to show you. And this is how close the race was, okay? Now, that's Pete on the left, and the 88-year-old on the right is right there, <laughs> okay? But you can see, see, see I mean, Pete... He, he nipped him, okay? So inch, two, three, Pete's looking over. He knows he's got this guy, okay? He knows that he took him. Now, some of us think about, think about that in spiritual terms. We fall short. You know, you know, that guy who was in second, he fell just short, didn't he? He was almost there. He was just striving. He was pumping his legs and just an inch or two, and he would have had it. That's sometimes how we think about our sin in relationship to God's glory. We, we, we're doing pretty good, but we fall just short of it. And let me just say, that is a spiritual miscalculation that can and does cost people their spiritual lives. The word that Paul uses here for fall short, histeruntai literally means to be destitute of. To be destitute. There's this idea that God, in his infinite glory and holiness, you know, John tells us that he is true light of true light. In him, there is no darkness at all. And what we learned from Romans 1, just a couple of chapters earlier, is Paul says, we don't, you and I don't want any part of this glory. Okay, it doesn't matter what we say or how much churchianity we cloak ourselves in, but we suppress this truth, we run from it, we squash it, we deny it, we flee it, we rationalize it. We are, in our natural condition, destitute of the glory of God. Because we don't like it when other people get glory, do we? There's, there's, there's typically one person we're most vested in seeing that person glorified, right? And who is that? Moi. Okay? That's me. And, and by the way, if, you, if you're kind of in that place of, you know, that's kind of me on the right there, okay? That makes, that makes Pete God, but just that's where the illustration breaks down, okay? That's kind of me on the right there. I'm just kind of do, doing the best I can. I just fall, fall just short. Turn your cell phone off for, for, for 20 minutes this afternoon and just ask God to rehearse your week to you. Who were you when no one was looking which websites did you go to? How did you speak to your wife or your husband? How much time did you spend with your kids? How many lies did you tell? Deceptions did you perpetuate? Perpetuate, there you go, sorry. How many lies, how many, how, how, how many times did you wag your tongue and slander someone and gossip? I think if God were to take the blinders off, like he did with Isaiah in the throne room for even a second, and we were allowed to see our sin and our destitution and its full impact, we would be like Isaiah, Lord, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I am coming apart at the seams. I am literally disintegrating. Guys, we, we, 
we've got problems. And in light of that truth, which I think we all intuitively, even though it's hard to recognize, we intuitively understand it. We look at the world around us. We look at our hearts. And Paul speaks right into that and says, what is it, Christian, that you need? What is it that the world needs? We need righteousness. Don't you? I need righteousness in the face of a holy God. But we don't have it. And we know we don't have it. And the only way we are going to get it is if God gives it to us. And that, my friends, is what Romans 3 calls grace. Look at Romans 3.24. Paul says, we are justified by his grace, what? As a gift. That means we add nothing to it. In fact, this was the heart of, of the conflict that enveloped Luther in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church says, God's grace enables you to be obedient. You need grace, all right, but God does his part, and now it's time for you to do yours. So get to it. And here's the problem with that. The minute, now let me rephrase that, the second that we try to add something to our salvation, to our righteousness, the minute it stops being grace. Because if we add something to our salvation, then what? God's not giving us a gift. He's giving us something that is owed. And that's an entirely different spiritual equation. You know, when I was in seminary about 20 years ago, Susan's father had some real severe health issues, and so we kind of shut it down, and for the summer, moved back with her parents. And her, while well, they tended to him and kind of nursed him back to health, and for that summer, I worked for my father-in-law managing his real estate properties. And by managing, what I mean is I mowed the grass. Okay, you got you with that? Okay. Now, at the end of the summer, when he handed me a check for $1,500, which seemed like an extraordinary amount of money at the time, I did not profusely thank him. Okay? I, I was courteous. I acknowledged it, you know, all that. But, but I didn't profusely thank him because do you thank your employer every time you get a paycheck? Okay, if you're a state worker, do you, te- do you text Rick Scott, thanks, man, okay, really appreciate it? <laughs> no, you do not. Why? Because it's not a gift. It's owed to you. It's a wage. You earned it. You worked for it, and now you are collecting what is due. Now, around that same time, Susan's parents came into a, a small inheritance and it was at Christmas. Can I do a Christmas illustration? I mean, we, we need a Christmas illustration in July, okay? So, so we'd given out all the gifts, and it was a great Christmas. And, and Susan's dad said, you know, we have one more gift for you. Just want one more. And it's kind of around the, the backside of the Christmas tree in there. And there was an envelope. And in that envelope was a big wad of cash. It was about $1,500. Same amount of money. And so what did we do? We profusely thank that man, okay? We acknowledge the grace that we had received by this gift because guess what? We had done nothing to earn it. See, that's the difference in a gift and a wage. And the reason Luther says, no, 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 this whole thing is by grace. The righteousness of God is by grace is because if it was something we added to, then it's a wage, 
It's a payment made to us. God is indebted to us. And Luther said that's not, and Paul says, that's not the way it is. Okay? We need, what we need, for folks, is righteousness. And the only way we're going to get it is by the grace of God, which brings us to our second point. Where does it come from? Now, I'm assuming, if you're here this morning, most of us would be very adept at this fill-in-the-blank Bible study. We need grace. Grace comes from blank. Fill-in-the-blank, what is it? God. Okay, I I think we're past that, okay? We know it comes from God, but the reason I want to make a point about how it comes from God or in what form it comes from God, because culturally we we live in a, because we don't live in an atheistic culture. We live in a spiritual culture, which means that, that God is great as long as he does what we want him to do. Okay? God is great as long as we can make him in our image and he meets all of our therapeutic, psychological, and emotional needs. God is awesome. Okay? If he does for you what you want him to do, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. That's where all that sort of leads. We love that joy, 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 joy down the depths of our heart, right? We could do the game and stand up and sit down and all that stuff. We won't do that. So we have to ask, make, make sure we understand, in what way does this, does this grace come to us from God? Verse 24. Back to verse 24. We are justified by his grace. We got that part as a gift. Now this is so crucial. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Make no mistake, folks. Grace comes from God, but in one way, in one way alone. And that is through his son, Jesus Christ. And that is a cultural taboo that will get you in trouble, that will not win win you friends and influence people where all roads lead to Rome, where, where, where there are as many truths as there are people. And in one way is fine as long as it's not the only way And Paul says there's only one way to peace with God, and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. That's how you're justified. And here is is where we'll try to define justification. And you may have heard, and, and there's nothing inherently wrong with this definition, what is justification? Just as if I've never sinned, right? You've heard that. I think there's a there's a better a better definition, this one is about 400 years older, comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it's simply this. Justification is the act of God's free grace by which he pardons all of our sins and, and this is important, accepts us as righteous in his sight. Okay? So he pardons all of our sins, cancels the debt, but then he accepts us as righteous in his sight. That's a world of difference in simply saying, well, we're gonna, God's going to treat you just like you haven't sinned. And let me, let me tell you the difference in these two things, okay, and why this is important. You know, we're, we're coming up on, on football season, and, and if I get a hankering, okay, this season, that a big season is in store for Tennessee, that this is the year to do the thing they haven't done since 1998, when they won the national championship and beat FSU 23 to 16, okay, this is the, this is the, the, the one thing that has not happened. This, this is their year. And I'm going to wager everything I have on this. Okay, unbeknownst to Susan, I'm going to mortgage our house. I'm going to cash out all of our credit cards. 
in retirement if there was one, okay? And, and, you, and, and, and I'm going to push it all to the middle of the table. And then Tennessee does what they will inevitably do this season, which is go 7 and 5, okay, maybe 8 and 4. You found me six months from now, where would I be? I would clearly be destitute on the streets, right? I've lost everything. I've lost my job. I've lost ministry, family, marriage, friends. Guido, the killer pimp, is coming after me because I owe him 300 grand. Okay, wh- whatever. Okay, I'm, I'm in big trouble. But let's say that you show up and you say, Paul, I want to help you with Guido. I'm going to pay off your debt. Okay, $300,000. And that would be awesome because Guido's not after me anymore. And a lot of people think, well, that's what it means to be justified. God just cancels that debt. Except there's a problem. And the problem is that I'm still destitute. I'm still on the street. I've still lost my family. I've lost my job. I've lost everything. But let's say that you had the ability to restore it all to me in Job-like fashion. The wife, the kids, the ministry, the family. But not only that, you were, you, you were able to position me better financially than I was before I even started. If, if you even begin to resonate with that picture, you begin to resonate with justification. God doesn't simply, for Oaks, get us back to ground zero. Okay. God elevates us past where we were even before we begin. He doesn't just cancel our debt. He pours out his grace and his mercy And then he adopts us as his sons and daughters, and he clothes us with his righteousness. And he gives us not just earthly home, he gives us a heavenly home. Guys, he accepts us as as righteous in his sight. See, there's a world of difference in having a debt canceled and then having every full and awesome blessing that comes from being a son or daughter of the king. That's justification. And the way this happens, through Jesus, Paul says in verse 25, Jesus, whom God put forward, big word, as a propitiation, we'll talk about that in a second, by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins quick Cliff Notes version. Guys, a propitiation is a sacrifice. It is blood that is offered up to appease an angry, wrathful God. If that imagery offends you, it's straight from the Bible. Because Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Paul's saying that Jesus has offered up his blood It is a shield. It protects us. It covers us. He's given us his righteousness. We sin. God comes to us, finds the blood of his son. His wrath is averted. We sin. God requires righteousness. He comes to us. Jesus, even right now, is interceding with his righteousness for you. He is a propitiation by his blood because without the shedding of blood there is no for forgiveness of sins and make no mistake for someone will pay the penalty for your sin 
Someone will shed their, their blood for your sin. It's either be you or it will be Jesus. And Paul says the, the amazing thing about this is that even now, and this is just astounding, just think about this, Jesus is passing over your sin. God is passing over your destitution. You are sinning, but Jesus' blood is covering. You are unrighteous, but God looks at the righteousness of Christ. God requires payment. He goes to collect, and Jesus makes payment for you right here, right now. Folks, our need for propitiation in this life never ends. It never ends. And that's why it says that Jesus, in the throne room of God, is offering up this sacrifice of his blood for us. He just died one time, but he's continually making intercession for us. So what we need is righteousness. It comes from God by grace through Christ. And finally, last point, how do you get it? How do we get it? Because let me say this. You can come here this morning and be totally tracking all the way up to this point about what we need and how we get it and walk out of here today for Oaks and be unjustified. That is possible. Which is why Paul addresses what he addresses in verse 21 in Romans 3. Look what he says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That just simply means no amount of obedience or law keeping will justify you. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, and here's the money statement. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And the way we receive our justification today and made right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Let me me explain what we mean by faith and what we don't mean by faith. Because we're, we're in a culture that traffics in term like faith and belief. Okay? The last two summers, the Gilbert family has done something that five years ago I would have said is unimaginable. We have actually watched soccer on television. Okay? We watched the men's World Cup last summer, the women's World Cup this summer. We're already looking forward to the subpar Olympic soccer that we'll see next summer. We're all into this thing. Because, and it's unimaginable because I've always adopted the Jim Rome philosophy of soccer, which is, which is basically this. Why do 12 million kids in America play soccer? So they don't have to stay home and watch it on TV, right? That's always been me, but no more. We are, all, we are all into this soccer, all into the Women's World Cup. But you go Google America Women's World Cup gold, and then just add the word belief or believe, and watch what comes up. Inevitably, you will hear the player say, we what? Believed in each other. We believed in the process. We believed in the coach. We believed in the team. We believed we were going to win. In fact, you might see a little spiritual language in there. We had what? Faith. Oh, we had faith in each other that we were going to be able to pull it out. Now, here's what's interesting. The United States has not won a World Cup in women's soccer before this in and it was 1999 was the last time. So the 03 team, the 07 team, the 2011 team, go Google all those teams and put the word believe in, and you will in- invariably find these players and these coaches saying the very same thing. We believe in each other. 
We have hope for the future. We have faith that we're going to be able to pull it out. Because, see guys, culturally, faith and belief are oftentimes no more than merely desires or their hopes or their dreams or their wishful thinking. They're certainly not necessarily a certain thing. And let me just say this, that is not biblical faith. That is not biblical belief. Hebrews 11.1. Now, faith is what? The assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Guys, it is not faith if we do not have assurance and conviction that God has poured out His grace upon us and the righteousness upon us through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. And there's really two aspects of faith that we have to grab a hold of. And, and, and please listen. Okay, we've got five minutes. Please listen. This is so, so important. Faith has two components to it. There's a belief in the promise made, and there is a commitment to the promise giver. Parents, this is so, so important for your kids. It is a belief in the promise made. It's a commitment to the promise giver. Another way of saying it, belief most certainly is saying that truth is true. That word from God is true. I believe it to be true, but it's also a willingness to entrust ourselves to it and to grab hold of it. Both are essential, and, and let me explain how this is so. As many of you have been, have been praying for my mom, who's got stage four um, metastatic cancer and doesn't have a, a real long time to live, probably. And you've been asking about her, and we, we saw her last week, and, which was a grace and, and great. She, her, condition, her condition continues to, to, to worsen, and so just pray for us as we love her and serve her at this phase of their, of their life. But her life's in the Lord's hands, and she's a believer. But one of the things that we have learned through this process okay, is that, humanly speaking, there is no cure for cancer. Okay? There's supernatural cures but there's no human cures for cancer, or else everybody would be doing it. Okay? Imagine, though, if someone came up with a pill that if you took it, you knew you would be healed from cancer on one condition. This pill would take everything that you have, everything that you own, all the money, all your worldly possessions, your cars, the clothes on your back, all, you would have to give up your entire material life. And you found out you had cancer. What would you do? This is, not a, this is a pretty good spiritual analogy for where a lot of people find themselves, by the way. You see people around you taking the pill, and they are being healed. And you intellectually say, yep, that is a cure for cancer. And yes, people do take that pill, and yes, they are healed. And I believe that. But I'm not willing to take that pill myself. Because the cost is too great, and the path is too hard. Folks, that is not biblical belief. It's never represented in the Bible as biblical belief. And my fear is that we have a cultural culture of nominal Christianity which says that's belief. 
It's not faith if you're not willing to entrust yourself to it. Faith not only agrees, here's another way of saying it, that Jesus is your righteousness. It must do that. But it is the empty hand that reaches out to receive the gift, the pill, that only God can give. And so we entrust ourselves to him through it. Last point and we're done. How does this apply to you right here, right now, today? And you may say, Pastor Paul, I've, I've placed my faith in Christ. And I'm, I'm, how, I'm right with him. How does, this, how does this land on me where I am right now, right, right here where I, where, where I sit? Guys, we just got back from, from Tennessee last week. And I don't know about you, but there's sometimes you get done with a vacation, you're like, I need a vacation for the vacation. You know, do you have one of those moments? Okay, that was a moment for us. Okay, there was nothing restful about it. It was a good time with family, but at the same time, I was just spiritually out of touch. Okay? No time for prayer, study, reading, reflection. And I come home feeling deflated. I come home feeling distant from God. I'm 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 struggling, okay, in my walk with him. And there and there there's there's two mistakes that I could make or you could make if you're in a similar place as it relates to justification. There's two mistakes. One mistake would be to say, you know, God, because I'm completely justified before you, what I'm feeling right now is just neurotic. It's, it's invalid. It's an overactive conscience. Um, I'm going to suppress it. I'm going to ignore it. I know you and I are, are good. I'm justified before you. And let me just say, guys, that would be the wrong way to view this because... My, my, while my justification before God has not been affected by my distance, my fellowship has. And it's just like if my, if with, with Susan, if I were to, to, to tell her, if we had been distant relationally for a week or two, because I've been watching too much British Open or whatever, okay, we're distant, and I were to simply say, you know what, we're good. We're married, right? We're married. So that, that, doesn't that suffice? Like, no, no. And there's a lot of scriptures that, that back this up. What does it say? Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Men, treat your wives lovingly so that your prayers are not hindered. The discipline of the Lord draws us to him. So that would be a mistake to say, based on my justification, I'm not, this fellowship with God doesn't concern me at all. That, that's, that's a wrong application. A second misapplication would be, I get home from vacation, I'm feeling distant from God, and i got to go to work. It is time to work, 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 to get back with God. i got to make things right. i got to start praying. i got to start reading my Bible. I have, I've, um, I'm, I've, I'm way behind. I've got to catch up. And when I do that, I'm saying effectively, God, my relationship with you is up for grabs, and I better do what I can to get back in good with you. God's wrong as well. Because when I'm called to draw near to Christ, it's not in spite of my justification, it's because of my justification. The reason Susan and I can go out on a date night this week and reconnect relationally is because we're married. Our relationship is not up for grabs every time there's some disconnect or distance. 
It provides the foundation for our relationship. Guys, our justification provides the foundation and the framework for ongoing engagement with Christ. Draw near to Him today because you're right with Him. He's right with you if you are in Christ Jesus. If we don't get that spiritual equation right, we will vacillate between neuroses and spiritual anxiety or disinterest or hardness of heart and both are spiritual dead ends. But maybe you are someone today who would say, Pastor Paul, I don't know whether I'm justified or not. I am unsure. I'm doubting where I am with God. I don't even know Christ. In fact, I have been living such a life, I don't know if God could ever accept or justify me. You need to know this. You can walk out of here today completely justified before God, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what's been going on in your heart, and it would be our highest privilege as pastors, elders, leaders, to talk to you about that. There's no more important, ultimate question that we can ask in life is how am I to be made right with God? And it's through Jesus. And that's what this table is all about. This table is open to any who are justified through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads and just take a moment or two to reflect on Romans 3, this article on justification, asking God to prepare you to come and to celebrate your justification. And as you do that, I'm going to ask our elders and leaders to come forward, prepare to serve the elements.